Uh, so this morning, right, I wanted to set the stage with um, giving us this vision of God as, as beautiful, uh, that God is beautiful and his beauty seen uh, in uh, his, uh, his uh, simplicity as the God who is one and the God who is three in his Trinitarian life. And so this evening, I want to, and I do realize I am the last thing standing between you and the bonfire and cider and chocolate. I want to talk, um, bring that kind of to us and talk about uh, image identity and welcome in Christ. And so we're going to make us a bit of transition with uh, this question, uh, the, talking about the nature of humanity. What is, right, what's the first thing that God says in his word about humanity? That is a real question. Like, I hear, I hear mumblings and let us make, and with a very deep God-like voice. Yes. <laughs> yes, right? God says, right, sixth day of creation, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And the declaration is, right, God created man, it says in Genesis 1, 27, God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so, right, that bears a question then. We are, we are image bearers. We are, in very real sense, the image of God. What does this declaration of image mean, though? What does it mean for God to say that we are his image? There is, a, I, I, there is something I do need to just kind of point out here, and this is... Uh, this is this declaration is um, perhaps the most uh, countercultural thing that could have been said about humanity in ancient Near Eastern culture. Why is that? Because uh, consider those to whom this message was first given and who first heard Moses communicating this story, the people of Israel in slavery in uh, in Egypt, and in ancient Near Eastern culture, there was only one who was in the image of the gods, and that was the king. The king was in the image of the gods and nobody else. In fact, uh, if, you, uh, were, um, uh, if you were a citizen of that kingdom, you had rights and privileges, but if you were not, you could be enslaved. Hence, the people of Israel are in slavery in Egypt. They are not Egyptians. So they could be put in bondage. And, and for God to say, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and the declaration that God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, him, male and female, he created them. The very declaration in the first verses of the first book of 
The Bible is that men and women are equally the image of God. Only the king was the image of God and certainly not a woman in ancient Near Eastern culture. And so for God to declare that humanity, men and women, were in his image, it meant a sense of, of, of dignity, of value that, uh, that could not be diminished by anything else in creation. I love what Esther Lightcap Meek says, quoting her again. I'm sorry, this is not Esther Lightcap Meek. This is Elaine Scarry, who in her little book, um, it's a dense book, it's little, but it's dense, uh, on beauty and being just. She writes, beauty brings copies of itself into being. It makes us draw it, take photographs of it, or describe it to other people. That, that beauty is such that it, it, it brings copies of itself into being. And so when you think about God as being beautiful, we think about God in his life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the pinnacle of beauty, supreme beauty, that, that beauty brings copies of itself into being. That is what God is doing when he declares, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Not only do we have inherent dignity, but that inherent dignity is wrapped up in an inherent beauty that we possess as people. And so I want to just dive a little deeply into this idea of individual dignity, our beauty being expressed and connected to an incalculable dignity that each human being has. Humanity has got a unique place in the created world. We are creatures of incomparable value, worth, dignity. Um, Nona, no, I'm sorry, this is, this is Richard Pratt in his book, um, Designed for Dignity. He asks his readers at a certain point, he says, I want you to put my book down, and the next person that you see, I want you to go up and shake his or her hand and say, hello, your majesty. That is how much the, 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 the dignity, the value, and the worth it is. Um, it is a, a royal dignity. This is the word dominion in Genesis 1:26 speaks of royalty, which is a facet of the divine image in every human person. This is Nona Werner Harrison in her book, God's Many Splendored Image. She says, royalty involves dignity and splendor, a legitimate sovereignty rooted in one's very being because everyone is made in the image of God and because this image defines what it means to be human. People are fundamentally equal regardless of the differences in wealth and education uh, and social status. The church, she says, preached this countercultural message in the ancient world and it still preaches this message today. This is still the countercultural proclamation of the church today. 
that every human person is fundamentally equal regardless of differences in wealth, education, race, culture, class, socioeconomic status. This is the message of the church and that equality is an equality in a royal dignity, a majestic royal dignity. We'll see this tomorrow, but God promises in Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 1, this promises this foreshadowing look of what humanity will be. Lord, the Lord says, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the anointed one, really, the Messiah says, for the sake of Zion, I will not be quiet, and for the sake of Jerusalem, I will not keep silent. I am going to keep working and keep talking. And he says, you will be a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You will be a beautiful crown in the hand of your God. He says of his people, what I'm going to restore is beauty. He says, you will not, he doesn't say you will wear a beautiful crown. You will wear a beautiful di a royal diadem. He says, you will be a beautiful crown in the hand of your Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. This is where we are going with humanity. And so there are really, right, this, this gets at the tragedy of sin, the tragedy of the brokenness of our world, the brokenness of, of humanity and sin and the fact that we do not naturally recognize inherent dignity, value, and worth in other people. Martin Luther King said it this way in her, it is, uh, I have a dream speech in 1965, he said, the whole concept of the Imago Dei, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God has injected, not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God, and this gives him a uniqueness, it gives him a worth, it gives him dignity. And we must, must never forget this as a nation, he said, there are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble uh, white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. He says one day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. One day, he says, we will learn that. I want to look for a few minutes at this dignity even more, this inherent and unimaginable dignity as part of the reason that God forbids idolatry. It's part of the reason that God forbids uh, us from giving our worship and devotion to anything in all creation. So the second commandment has particular relevance when it comes to the issue of human dignity. What is the second commandment? Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 6, right? The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, right? The Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. 
you will have no other gods before me. And then he says in the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and who keep my commandments. We hear this and we know as Christians that, that God forbids idolatry. That's that doesn't change from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Uh, John, in the letter of 1 John, he ends the letter with these words, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idolatry throughout has been a part of what happened to humanity in the fall. Giving things other than God, the worship that only belongs to God, alone. And but the reality is that the second commandment also has to do with human dignity. Why do I say that? Because, right, it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of anything that is in the heavens above or the earth beneath or the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You shall not make any images of anything in creation for the purpose of worship. You shall not do that. Why? Because God has already made his image in the earth. God has already declared what his image is in the earth, and it's us. And so for us to worship an image <laughs> is, is actually a denial of our own dignity, value, and worth. It is to bow down actually to something that is less than ourselves. No, we don't worship one another, but it is... It is, it is absolutely of the utmost significance that God says, I have made my image in the earth and it's humanity, male and female. That's my image in the earth. And so the second commandment, and I think I'm getting ahead of myself because I think I have this on the next slide, but the second commandment is in part to protect us <laughs> from devaluing ourselves. When you give your heart in worship to something other than God, you are devaluing your own humanity. You are declaring, I am not as valuable and worthy as God has said. I am not as beautiful. <laughs> we are not as beautiful as God has declared us to be. Isaiah put it this way, or the Lord puts it this way in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 to 10. The Lord says, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither, neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. 
who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? The Lord is like, who does that? Who makes something that doesn't profit them in any way? G.K. Beals, the president of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, has a book titled um, We Become What We Worship, a biblical theology of idolatry. This idea that, that especially in the book of Isaiah, that, that, that the idol worshiper becomes like the idol. The idol worshiper becomes deaf and mute <laughs> and is unable to see like that block of wood. And he says, Isaiah makes an intentional contrast between the nation of Israel as the work of God's hands and the idols they make as the work of men's hands. God has set up humans as the only legitimate images of God. Worshiping idols is an affront to human dignity in that it prevents people from reflecting God's glory. Since people are made by the divine hands to function as legitimate living images, they are to reflect the glory of the image of the living God. And so we rejoice and the immeasurable value and dignity of every person because we are the image of God. And so I'm going to run through these quickly. What was the danger to Israel? What was the danger to them in violating the second commandment? It was that they would be led astray by their own desires. They would be remade in the image of those desires. Their identity, their identity would mirror those images instead of God. We're about to start talking about identity, but right, our identity is supposed to be rooted in the reality that we are the image of God. And so... A worshiping of idols reroutes <laughs> that identity in something else. The essence of the second commandment was intended to protect their identity as image bearers of the divine creator to secure his covenant love for them and his promise to be with them always. Richard Pratt says this warning and danger was not just for Old Testament Israel, but it runs through the New Testament and applies to us today. As Pratt says, all idols eventually abuse. The difference with God is that he will never abuse. All idols promise what they can't give, and they eventually abuse you. But God never abuses. In his mercy, he will lift his faithful images to glory. And this is why when we talk about issues that relate to the, the devaluing of other image bearers. This is why racism and racist ideas are, are not simply just sinful. Yes, they're sinful. Yes, it's sin to hold racist ideas and to, be, uh, and to, uh, and to expound racism toward others. But it is, it is particularly sinful it's, I, because it's idolatry. It is a denial of the Imago Dei. It's a denial of the image of God in a fellow human being. To borrow from um, somebody you guys might know, Duke Kwan, 
put it this way. It is a doxological, you know, Duke is like, you know, he's got his, it's a doxological uh, sin. <laughs> it's a worshiping sin. It's a sin of worship, which is tied to the second commandment. It's a doxological sin. Racism is because it is an inordinate form of racial self-love. It's an inordinate form of saying we are the ones who are really worthy of dignity and value and, and we are the ones who, who, should, who should be shown deference to and, and love for, not y'all. And so racism is idolatry. People ought to know, we ought to know that our security and significance are rooted in the God that we image. And so here's a clip. I, this is um, Sterling Brown. You may want to do the lights to see if we can see a little better. So he, um, he won the Golden Globe uh, this year, in 2018, um, as the best TV actor uh, for his role in the, anybody watch This Is Us? Anybody see his little speech here that I'm about to play? All right, so this, is his, this is his acceptance speech. That's about a minute and a half. Let's listen to what he says. Right? Oprah. Don't want to run out of time. So let me thank my wife. Brian Michelle Bethe, I love you so much. Thank you for supporting me through this whole thing. To my kids, Andrew and Amari, Daddy will see you. I will take you to school in the morning, I promise. Um, I wanna thank my cast, which is absolutely amazing, and we take turns leading and supporting one another. I love each and every one of you. To uh, my network, NBC, to Bob and Jennifer, to, uh, to Fox, to Gary, to Dana, but also I wanna thank Dan Fogelman. Now, Dan Fogelman, Throughout the majority of my career, I have benefited from colorblind casting, which means, you know what, like, hey, let's throw a brother in this role, right? It's always really cool. But Dan Fogelman, you wrote a role for a black man, like that could only be played by a black man. And so what I appreciate so much about this thing is that I'm being seen for who I am and being appreciated for who I am. And it makes it that much more difficult to dismiss me or dismiss anybody who looks like me. So thank you, Dan. Thank you, Hollywood Film Press. So you hear what he said? He said, I've been, I've been used to colorblind casting. Like I said, okay, well, we kind of, we, we need some diversity in this, in this picture, so let's get, a, let's get a brother and put him in that role, right? And, but he thanked uh, his creator and producer, he said, you, you created a role that could only be played by a black man. Like you had somebody like me in mind. Like I, 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 I need to be seen. <laughs> I need to be seen and not dismissed. I need to be seen for who I am uh, as a black man. And that sense, again, that's about, that's about dignity, <laughs> value, worth, being appreciated for who he is in his embodied self. And so, right, the question of identity, how do we, who are we and how do we know who we are? 
there is this reality of kind of self-identification. It was important for Sterling Brown right, to be seen as a black man. That's who I am. Central to the issue of identity is how people view themselves. How do we view ourselves? And what we desire, deep down, all of us, what we desire is a self-identification that accords with dignity. We all desire a self-identification that accords with dignity, the dignity that we know we're due, whether we believe in Jesus or not. We know it when we, one, ourselves are having struggle, struggle to, 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 to believe that we have value and worth and dignity. And we know it when others do not value us as well. And so there's a deep-rooted desire to have a self-identification that accords with dignity as image bearers. And so identity can be defined as a person's understanding of who he or she is based on socially constructed, meaningful categories that people use to describe themselves. Like I know that's really like technical uh, language, but it gets at a couple of things. We talked about beauty, and I'm going to bring up the uh, uh, Esther Meek quote again about being seen, right? And, and, and Sterling Brown talks about being seen, right? It, I, I need to be seen by others. My sense of dignity and value is not just formed by myself. It is socially constructed by others who see me and speak to me. And so, right, you know um, what this is a mural of. Uh, this is uh, a, a painting from, uh, that, that recounts the uh, sanitation workers' strike from uh, February of 1968, the strike that brought Martin Luther King Jr. to, uh, to Memphis, uh, Tennessee, where two African-American sanitation workers were working and required to work in a torrential downpour uh, in that city, and, uh, and as they were going about their work, they took shelter from the rain in the back of the garbage truck, um, and the electrical switch malfunctioned, and these two men um, were, uh, were crushed to death by the garbage compactor. And the public works department in the city refused to compensate their families financially. And 11 days after their death, about 1,300 uh, predominantly black sanitation workers in Memphis walked off the job on strike. Um, and that strike was about dignity. <laughs> right? It was about individual value and, and dignity. Right? This is the photograph at Claiborne Temple. They made signs for the protest that simply declared, I am a man. That was the protest, I am a man. I need to say, because you are not viewing me that way, I need to say it to you. I am a man, and that comes with a certain sense of dignity that needs to be accorded to me. 
As one worker said, we felt like we would have to let the city know that because we were sanitation workers, we were human beings. The signs we kept were carrying said, I am a man, and we were going to demand to have the same dignity and the same courtesy as any other citizen of Memphis has. The need to demand <laughs> dignity. And so let me ask this question, and I think I'm nearing, uh, I am nearing the end. I think I had a couple more slides after this one. So hang in there with me. I know it's 8.15 or so. What makes for a self-identification that accords with dignity? Right, as image bearers, we know we need that. And so uh, in his book, um, Sources of the Self, uh, Charles Taylor writes this. There are four things, he says, that make for a self-identification that accords with dignity. He says, one, either a sense of power, <laughs> two, a sense of dominating public space, three, an invulnerability to power, and four, any self-sufficiency. And so, right, he is not just simply giving us some biblical notions, but it is tied to what God declares when he says we are his image and what he tells humanity to do, right, is to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over the creation. That there is a royal dignity that, is included, that has an authority. And so there's a sense in which a, a self-identification that accords with dignity is either going to be a sense of power, some sense of dominating public space, some sense of invulnerability to power, like we make our, try to make ourselves shielded from hurt and harm, or some sort of self-sufficiency. This is what the Lord needs to redeem. <laughs> In our sense of dignity, Charles Taylor says, the very way we walk, move, gesture, speak is shaped from the earliest moments by our awareness that we appear before others, that we stand in public space, and this space is potentially one of respect or contempt, of pride or shame. From our earliest days, from the, from the time we are born, <laughs> Right, And we open our eyes and we look into the face of our mother. We need an affirming gaze coming back at us. We are aware that we live and exist before others in some type of public space, even in our families. And that public existence is one of either respect or contempt of pride or shame depending on the gaze. And so here's the quote from Esther Meek again when she says, a sense of beauty, I believe, only uh, comes, I believe, only in the generous self-giving gaze, the noticing regard of another person. And so that just puts before us, like, when, if we know that, right, if we know as Christians that that every person, even ourselves, is, is worthy of, uh, of value and has inherent dignity. How, how, is, how do we look 
at other image bearers? How do we see them? How do we see not just brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, that'd be enough, right? But other image bearers. Are we able to to look with a generous, self-giving gaze? A self-giving gaze that, that, that communicates a noticing regard to the other person that communicates to them, because what Meek says here when she says a sense of beauty, she's talking about a sense of personal beauty. She's talking about my own sense that I'm actually beautiful. Right? Not necessarily just because of how I look, but that, that others are, that I am the recipient of generous, self-giving gazes in my direction. That, that, the, that, that I, I receive this noticing regard uh, from other people. And so watch, think about this. And these are the last two slides. Think about this in relation to what we hear the Lord saying to us again and again in the scriptures. One of my favorite passages, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 to 3, the Lord says, Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which does n- is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and in- eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. We hear in this welcome, this invitation from the Lord, an affirmation of value and dignity and worth, a generous, self-giving, noticing regard for us, where he says, come. If you're thirsty, come. Come. I know you don't have any money. I know you don't have anything that you can offer to me that will make me take notice of you. It's free. My self-giving gaze, my noticing regard is free. So come and eat. Come and drink. Come and dine at my table. You're welcome here. I'm laying out the feast. I'm laying out the banquet. And you have a seat at the table because I see you. Come, eat what's good, he says. Delight yourselves in rich food. To sinful, busted up, broken down people. Delight yourselves in rich food. The thing that causes you the sinfulness that causes you to, one, struggle with identity issues. Struggle with identity issues uh, because, on the one hand, you think, I'm not worthy, I'm not valuable, I'm not enough because I don't live the perfect, righteous, and holy life. I'm nothing. Or the other side, it says, "I I try to fake it to make it. 
by exercising undue power and authority over others to make myself feel worthy and valuable. And the Lord says, do away with all of that. I'm the one that's laying the feast. I'm the one you, right? This is, a, this is the idea of a banquet for, for royalty, <laughs> for, for prominent guests, rich food, <laughs> the finest affair, wine, flowing. And so here, the Savior, Jesus, saying, riffing, if you will, off of Isaiah 55, in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, he says, on the last day of the feast, that is the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And drink, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus issues the same command, if anybody is thirsty, come to me. <laughs> Stop trying uh, to assert your own dignity <laughs> in ways that don't measure up. Same invitation in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. You'll know this passage. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He says, come to me. All of, right, all of your labors <laughs> as trying to prove your worth. I mean, this is especially... Right, when I was working as an engineer for, for Motorola, I know what, what it's like right, to be in the, the rat race, and you've got to prove your worth. <laughs> you've got to prove that you're worthy of the raise, the worthy of the job, worthy of the promotion, right? things that chip away at your sense of value and dignity. And Jesus says, look, come to me. Come to me and I'll give you rest. I'm the one who affirms your dignity, value, and worth. I'm the one who says you are of immeasurable value. You are beautiful. You are beautiful because you are the image of God. Come to me and receive that rest. Know that rest. Stop trying to labor in a way to prove yourself <laughs> that you are enough because I declare that you are in me. Amen. That's it. Those weren't on the slide. So that's, I'm, I'm going to close there. I want to I, I close us with, <laughs> with prayer um, as we go into the rest of uh, the night. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your declaration over us. Thank you, Lord, for the declaration in your word that you rejoice over us, uh, that you uh, sing <laughs> praise songs of joy over your people, that you have renewed us in knowledge after the image of our creator, 
that you are the one who declares that we are beautiful and beloved because we are your, your image. I do pray, Lord, in a couple of ways, in the ways in which we struggle with a self-identification that accords with dignity, that you would affirm us in your love, that we would receive your word and your promise, Jesus, of rest. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the kind of eyes that look at other image bearers with a generous, self-giving gaze that sees in them the beauty and inherent dignity that they are because even though the images are cracked, it's still there. Would you give us that kind of love for our neighbors that we might glorify you? In Jesus' name, amen.